Good morning. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 is where we're going to be. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and mark two places in your uh, Bible this morning, a little bit uh, different. And we're going to look at Luke 3 and Matthew 3, so go ahead and find that um, if you're flipping through there. Uh, we're going to continue on this morning in our series through the book of Luke, where we have been looking specifically at the life of Jesus, trying to understand who this person is. What, who was this man? Who was this God that lived on this earth and then died on the cross and then rose again? That's what our objective is as we look through the book of Luke. Now, let me just go ahead and ask something of you as we start today. Um, especially for those of you who are believers in the room, you are uh, followers of Jesus, uh, go ahead and, and lean forward a little bit and try to put your thinking cap on uh, because we are going to deal with this morning um, some of the uh, most theologically uh, nuanced topics of the Christian faith, from baptism to Trinity, um, and, and these are they're going to be a lot of uh, a lot of heaviness in that. And so I want to ask you that you would lean forward in that and, and kind of work your way through this with me. If you're here this morning, you are a non-believer. You don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, and you're just trying to figure out what this church thing is all about. I pray that over the next few minutes, you would um, you would see very clearly uh, what we believe here. Uh, today, let me be real clear, we're going to look at a decisive moment in the life of Jesus. A decisive moment in the life of Jesus. A mile marker moment in the life of Christ, if you will, uh, from which at this point, right, there is no turning back from this point. Everything would be different uh, from here on out, not only from Jesus, for, but for us as well. So this is a uh, decisive moment. And then after we look at this decisive moment in the life of Christ, we are also going to look at this uh, a decisive moment in our own life and ask ourselves, have we had a decisive moment like Jesus has had? So before we start, I'm going to pray for us. You pray for me. Pray that I, that I would be able to speak clearly over the next few moments. I'm going to pray for you, and I pray that God would, would work in our hearts. So let's pray together, okay? Dear God, I pray that over the next few moments, Lord, you would make clear exactly what it is you want to uh, your word to testify. God, I pray that you would just mute the foolish ramblings of a man. And God, I pray that you would uh, be made known in this room, that, dear God, we would be drawn closer to you uh, through your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Dear God, I pray that, Lord, if there are decisions that need to be made, they would be made. Dear God, more than anything, I pray that the body of believers right now would be built up for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 3. Verse 1, here's what the scripture says. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Cephas. I worked really hard all week long <laughs> to be able to pronounce all of it. Thank you. I, I don't ask you to be impressed much, but just go home today and think, man, my pastor is really smart, all right? <laughs> Some of you are like, well, you still mispronounced it. Go home, leave, all right? <laughs> the Word of God, listen, this next part is important. The Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Who are we talking about here? The Word of God came to John. We are talking about John the Baptist, the first cousin of Jesus. Notice what happened after the Word of God comes to him. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is really important that we understand what John's message was to the people as he went into the region. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance for what do you get? A forgiveness of sins. So notice this. 
that he was baptizing people, but there was a prerequisite to his baptism. You had to first repent of your sins, and here's what he said this got you, that if you repented of your sins, God would forgive you of your sins. Now, this is a very important message to understand because God gave John this message for a reason. Notice why John gave God the message. Verse 4, As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked path shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all the flesh shall see, see the salvation of God. So notice what John the Baptist's job is to do. He is to go and proclaim a baptism of repentance so that, the Bible says, he can prepare the way for the Lord. Notice the descriptions, that the mountains will be brought low, they will be level, the crooked paths will be made straight, the valleys will be filled up. In other words, John is making a direct path available to people for when Jesus comes on the scene. Now, why is it important that people be ready to repent of their sins for when Jesus comes on the scene? Understand this, listen, you are never ready to deal with Jesus until you understand that you have a sin problem, okay? You are not ready to look Jesus, the Son of God, in the face, right? Until you understand that you've got some problems to take care of. And what John is doing to prepare the way of the Lord is he's coming, and he's saying, listen, especially to the, to the crowd that was the, the, the Jewish crowd of the day, you guys think you're ready for God, but let me explain something to you that you are sinners, and if you do not repent of God, you don't want anything to do with God. That's what he's telling. The same message that John preached is just as true for us. All right, you, you think, man, I'm ready to deal with God, I'm ready to see God, I'm ready to go to heaven and meet with God. You are not ready to deal with Jesus until you understand that you have a sin problem. Okay? Notice how John's ministry goes. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Now, let's just take note, okay? Some of y'all leave here on Sunday mornings, you're like, Pastor, you really stepped on my toes today. I've never called anybody a brood of vipers, right? <laughs> I'm, we're, we're opening up with that next week. Luke chapter 1, you brood of vipers, right? This is where we're going to go. This is, this is a confrontational preaching style. He says to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And I love that question because John warned them from the, to flee from the wrath to come. He says this, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to from these stones raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's he saying? That there is a certain lifestyle that accompanies repentance. That you should not rely on your religious activity to make you right with God. He says, I don't want to hear that you're a son of Abraham. In other words, in our modern day context, I don't want to hear that you have your name on membership roll. That is not what Jesus is interested in. God is not interested in dealing with your religious activity as if you could negotiate some terms of peace treaty with him. You realize that's what John's saying. Don't come, he's telling the Jewish people, don't come to the Messiah thinking you can negotiate. Here's how you negotiate with Jesus. You repent and you turn. He's not interested in religious activity. He's interested in repentance. Verse 10. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. In other words, there's a lifestyle that accompanies this repentance. Verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Fourteen soldiers who asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone who threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Verse 15. 
As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Now notice what's happening here. That as John is preaching, as the crowds are going, the crowds are growing, people are looking out and they're saying, this is it. This is the one who's the Messiah who we've been looking for. Notice John's response. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, I am not he who is to come, but he who is to come is on the way. Verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Heroditus, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John in prison. Now, real quick, up until this point, I have not done, told you one thing about Jesus. If you remember, we, have, we are looking at the life of Jesus. All right, John the Baptist, as good as his ministry was, we do not give a rip about John the Baptist's ministry unless it points to Jesus, which is why verse 21 is so important. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a, dove, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Real quick, if you've got your Bible, flip with me to Luke chapter 3. I want to give you a more detailed account of that baptism. Here's what Matthew says in Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to, for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's a really important phrase. We're going to come back to it. Then he considered, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What we see this morning in the baptism of Jesus is a decisive moment for me and you and for Christ that clearly illustrates to us why Jesus Christ came to earth. That is what we see in the baptism of Jesus, and we're going to walk through this. But ultimately, what we're going to come to understand is this. Jesus, who in the baptism is declared to be the Son of God, okay? The voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son. Jesus, who is declared to be the Son of God and is full of the Spirit of God, is baptized to identify with sinners and, listen, ultimately to save sinners. That is why Jesus is baptized. I want you to be able to uh, understand how I'm getting this bottom line. There are three things we see at the baptism of Jesus. The first thing we see at the baptism of Jesus, to understand this, is this. The first thing we see at the baptism of Jesus, we see a Savior among sinners. We see a Savior among sinners at this decisive moment in Jesus' life. To understand what's going on here, we really have to understand John the Baptist's ministry. The Bible says that John the Baptist came about preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And now what really is amazing about John the Baptist's ministry, if you begin to look at it, John the Baptist is growing a fairly successful ministry against all odds of growing a successful ministry. If you were to consult a church growth expert in the 21st century and you were to tell them, how is it that I can grow a church, they would say to you, well, the first thing you need to have is a building, and in that building it would probably be a good idea is to have air conditioning and comfortable chairs. Now, John the Baptist is preaching in a facility known as the wilderness, okay? And let me just tell you what they don't have in the wilderness. Comfy chairs or AC, and we're talking about in the wilderness of the area of Jordan, okay? We're not talking about South Carolina. We're talking about South Israel. 
right? Things are, are, are a little bit different there. But nevertheless, John is preaching in this, and against all odds, the crowds seem to be coming to John's ministry. And if you were to consult a church growth ministry and ask them, how do I grow a big church? They would say you would need an effective communicator who gets the point across without insulting the people. Can we just all agree that without, not insulting the congregation is the bare minimum that you could do to grow a church, right? What does John say? If you've got your Bibles open up to Joel, you brood of vipers, right? John's, John's con- style is confrontational, yet he understands that what he's doing is confronting people with their sin in order to prepare the way for Jesus to come. Now Luke, in, in the midst of this, Luke shows us this is what John the Baptist is doing and the crowds are coming. Luke shows us a very different picture of what Jesus' baptism is. He says, Jesus says, uh, Luke says Jesus was with all the people when he got baptized. In other words, Jesus, Luke is trying to show us that Jesus is just one among the many baptismal candidates. Now get, we have to kind of use our imagination to understand what's going on here. John the Baptist's ministry had crowds coming to get baptized. So we can imagine there would have been lines formed up and somebody would have come in and the Bible says they should have confessed their sins. They would have confessed their sins. They would have come into the water. They would be dunked. Next one come. Dunk. Next one come. So the line would have been moving up as the people were getting baptized. Another one gets baptized and the line moves up. What Luke shows us is that Jesus, in an act of humility that we're going to examine, put himself in that line. Now, the reason why this is so important is because Luke is trying to help us understand the timeline of what's happening at Jesus' baptism. See, I think most of us mistakenly think that when John came to Je- when Jesus came to John, John refused to baptize Jesus because he knew that he was the Messiah. This is why we think John says, and when he says, I should baptize you, not you, or you should baptize me, not I baptize you, we think he's saying that because he's the Messiah. But if we go back, and, and Luke's trying to help us understand the timeline here, if we compare what Luke has written to the book of what, what John the Baptist said about him, John the Baptist said this. You remember this scene from John 1 where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the world. Does everybody remember this? After he says that, here's what John says. I did not know him. But I came preaching that he might be revealed, and the Holy Spirit testified to me that the one on whom the Spirit rests will be the Son of God, will be the Messiah. So John, at this moment, does not know that Jesus is come to, uh, is, has come to be the Messiah. Nevertheless, Jesus has come to be baptized. What seems to be clear, though, at least from John's understanding, is that John, Jesus is in a line to, get bab- to be baptized for the repentance of sin, and Jesus doesn't need to be baptized for repentance of sin. Now think about this. If you've lived 30 years as a completely sinless person, I think you're going to develop a little bit of a reputation, right? Like, and I'm not talking about a self-righteous person. I'm talking about a sinless person. The Bible says that Jesus was sinless and that he had favor with God and man. In other words, because he had lived a sinless life, people looked upon him with favor. So we kind of have to imagine the scene here. This line of people is coming forth confessing their sins to be baptized. And here's the deal. The people in the line, they know why they're there. They know why their neighbors are there. They're, they're in line, they're talking. No, you're going to be baptized for forgiveness of sins, repentance. Tell me what you're repenting of. Well, I committed adultery in my last marriage, and I'm going to repent of that. Okay, cool. What are you repenting of? Uh, I, I committed a murder, and I'm going to repent of that. What are you repenting of? I'm greedy, and I'm a gossip, and I'm going to repent of it. And so, listen, they're all amongst themselves talking, and they're saying, yeah, hey, guys, get it. We get why we're here to be baptized for repentance of sin. 
they look across the line, they say, what is this guy doing to be here, baptized forgiveness of sin? In other words, I know why I'm here. Go ask my wife. She knows why I'm here. But what is he doing here? He's never sinned. This is why when Jesus comes into the waters with John the Baptist, John the Baptist says, listen, bro, you come to the wrong line. This is a baptism of repentance. Jesus, you've never sinned. So I should, you should baptize me, not the other way around. This raises a really important question for those of us who are thinking believers. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? If John was offering a baptism of repentance, why did Jesus have to be baptized? Everybody tracking with us so far? We're good? Okay. If not, just pretend, okay? You'll, you'll, get, you'll catch back up. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? Two clues we get from the text. First of all, I want you to notice that Luke tells us that Christ is just one person in the line of sinners to be baptized. So what's he doing here? Jesus is identifying himself with the sinners. Notice this. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. He comes out to the wilderness to hear John preach. John preaches his baptism of forgiveness of sin, and the line begins to line up, and Jesus looks at it, and Jesus knows them all, right? And he says, that one there, he committed adultery. That one there, he committed a murder. That one there is greedy. That one there has got anger problems. And Jesus looks at him. He's never sinned. Jesus looks at him, and Jesus goes and inserts himself into the line of sinners. Why is he doing that? Though he had never sinned, he took his place among the sinners so that he could identify with you and with me. This is the kind of Savior we have. That he has not come to say, you should do better, you should try harder, you should be better. He says, I'm coming to you. So he's identifying with sinners. But also, notice this. Luke tells us he was, just, he was one sinner in the line of sinners. Matthew tells us that Jesus said these words. We Let it be now to John that I may fulfill all righteousness. In other words, John says, no, I can't baptize you. And Matthew says, we have to do it so that we can fulfill all righteousness. Now, isn't that a weird phrase? Fulfill all righteousness. The question becomes, what do you, whose righteousness is Jesus trying to fill up here? Because obviously the answer can't be Jesus's. Get what Jesus is saying here, that the righteous level is here. And that in order to please God, the righteous level, it needs to be here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to fill the righteous level up. Now the problem is, Jesus had no need to fill his own righteous level up. He's already perfect. He's already met the standard. Whose righteousness is Jesus trying to fill up? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? He is fulfilling all of our righteousness. That we are the ones who are below the standard of righteousness. We are the ones who have failed. We are the ones who belong in the line. We are the ones who should be repenting of sin and our righteous level is too low and Jesus says, I will do it for you and I will bring it up. I will do what you cannot do. Jesus was baptized in order to identify with us and to fulfill our righteousness. Jesus was baptized in order to, to identify with us and fulfill our righteousness. Now, to understand really what's going on here, we've got to remember why Jesus Christ has come. And now listen, in modern, in modern society, it's really popular to talk about how Jesus has come to teach us to be good neighbors. Jesus did teach us to be good neighbors. That is not why Jesus Christ came. In modern society, it's popular to talk about how Jesus was this good moral teacher and he loves us and he comes to teach us how to love others. That's one reason why Jesus came. That is not the reason Jesus came. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Now, how did he intend to do that? We have to remember this to understand what, what's going on here in Jesus' baptism. 
How did Jesus intend to save sinners? Listen to me very clearly. He, can, he intends to save sinners by living the life that they could not live, by doing the things they couldn't do for themselves, like baptism. By dying the death they deserved to die. On the cross, he was crucified not for his sins, but for ours. And then by defeating the enemy, we would never be able to defeat. You know, death, death has a pretty good winning percentage rate. It's only ever lost one time, and the guy who beat it, his name is Jesus. This is what Jesus has come to do. In short, Jesus has come to serve as our substitute. Why is Jesus going down into the waters to be baptized? He's doing it for us. Here's the gospel in four words. Jesus in my place. Let me give you an illustration of why this is important. If Jesus did not get baptized on our behalf, everyone who was disobedient in the area of baptism would then die and go to hell because he, he, they, they would be la left lacking righteousness. Think about this. Think about Let me give you an illustration. The thief on the cross. Everybody, we, we, thought, we talk about this a good bit, don't we? The thief on the cross, did he make it to heaven because he wasn't baptized? I don't know if you know this, but you're running out of time when you find yourself on a cross to, to do business with Jesus, right? Luckily, this guy looks over and he says to Jesus, he says, remember me this day when you enter your kingdom. What does Jesus say back to him? This day you'll be with me in paradise. Now, here's not what Jesus said. Listen, this is really good. I'm glad Jesus is I'm saying, I'm really glad that you're deciding to, to really invest your faith in me. Here's the one thing you've got to do, though. You've got to find a way to get off this cross, and you need to be baptized. That's the only way you're getting to heaven. No, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Why? How could this person who had never been baptized make it to heaven without being baptized? Here's the answer. Jesus was baptized for him. See, the gospel is simply this. Jesus in our place. At his baptism, we see a Savior among sinners who is baptized so he can identify with us and accomplish what we cannot, a righteous life. Now, normally I wait until we close to have any kind of application off of messages, but I want to, before we go any further, I want to stop and I want to ask, ask ourselves this. How does this apply to my life right now, right here, sitting down? How does, how does this change me? Because, listen, what good is this if we don't know what to do with it? What, what, what is Jesus getting baptized for us change for us? Two, two points of application I want us to remember. First thing I want us to see is this. Jesus shows us at his baptism that when we see Christ, we see him among sinners. When we see Christ, we see him among sinners, and we are called to go to sinners. There is a tendency among modern Christians to view Christianity as a retreat inward into smaller and smaller and smaller circles of moral purity. We think that, oh man, I've got to stay away from all this sin that's out there in the world. And what we begin to do is view evil and view sin as out there instead of in here. And so because, because of this, we, we, can, we tend to we just get smaller and say, so, oh, that person does this, we can't hang out with them. Oh, that person drinks beer, can't hang out with them. Oh, that person listens to that kind of music, can't hang out with them. And all of a sudden, we begin to drown ourselves in into smaller and smaller circles of moral purity. The problem is we never see this in Jesus. In fact, some of Jesus' harshest words were to people who considered themselves righteous and morally superior because of their ability to cut people off who they thought were morally inferior. Jesus called these people hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. 
as we pursue holiness, and listen, I hope you know by now, if you've been coming a while, I'm serious about holiness. The Bible's serious about holiness. As we pursue holiness, though, we have to remember that sin we're trying to kill isn't sin out there, it's sin in here. And we remove what leads us to sin against Christ. However, we never separate ourselves from those who need Christ the most. So what does that mean? Let me just say it this way. This church will never be a place that forgets we are a hospital for sinners. You may have come in here this morning and you may think, man, you may, you may have come in here this morning reeking of last night. You, you, you may come in regretting the mistakes you made in the past week. But I, you may come in here today thinking, man, I am broken and I don't know what to do. Let me just remind you that your brokenness is welcome here. However, we're still going to preach like John the Baptist. If that, your brokenness is welcome because, listen, we're all broken, but we're seeking repentance together. When we see Christ, we see him among sinners. Let's remember that. Second point I want us to, a point of application I want us to see from Jesus being baptized is this. Christ identified with us. Now he calls us to identify with him. Christ called, identified with us. Now he calls us to identify with him. Now, just as plainly as I can put it, how do we identify with Christ? We identify with Christ by what we call believer's baptism. What Gary, what Sylvia, and what Megan did this morning. By coming into a, a baptismal pool, just like Jesus went down into a baptismal pool, and, ba and, and going under the waters, and being submerged with Christ, and raised with Christ. Now, let me talk about why this is so, such an important moment. Because this served as a decisive moment for Jesus. It was a moment where he looked back on as a decisive moment in, in context and said this changed everything. The reason why we think this is so important is because we believe that God has ordained you to have a similar decisive moment. Now, you might be, have been young and not remember it, but it is a believer's moment. Now, you might be here this morning, you might be saying, well, what, why is it so important that I be baptized as a believer? I was baptized as a baby. Can I just tell you, we have lots of people who come into our church and are baptized and have been baptized as a baby. First of all, let me tell you this. We do not dishonor any tradition that has baptized their babies. Praise, let me say it this way. Praise God for mamas and daddies that have baptized their babies. But we do believe, based on what Jesus is showing us here, that we are to have a decisive moment in our life where we decide to follow Jesus for ourselves and tell the world that. And now let me just say this, for some of you who lean on that crutch. Some of you are relying on a decision your parents have made when you're still not following Jesus yourself. That, maybe that's my hard brood of vipers moment. E Eli just amen that, and Eli's like seven. Amen, Eli, okay. <laughs> Here's, here's, what I, here's what I mean. Here's what I want to know. Have you had a decisive moment in your life marked where you can say, I have decided to follow Jesus? And to put it bluntly, if Christ can be baptized for me, I can be baptized for Christ. That's the two points of quick application. Now, real quick, we are about to, in the, I've preached 27 minutes on the first point, so that tells you where we're at for today, okay? As we move forward, listen. We are now about to move into the real theological deep end. Some of y'all are like, well, I thought we were already there because that was pretty boring, okay? Here's what you need to do if you've been thinking that. Pray for the next five minutes, okay? Spend the next five minutes in some deep prayer while the rest of us go on into the, the, the deep theological deep end again. I don't know if you realize this, but over the past three weeks, I have preached on the Trinity. This will be the third time in a row. 
Now, let me just stop for a talk, second and talk about how important this is. This is really important that every time we see the triune God represented, we point him out as the triune God because this is the distinction that makes us different than every other religion in the world. We believe in a triune, unified Godhead, that there is one God in three persons. Now, I know that's hard to understand, but we, we have to be able to deal with this because this is the God we serve. When I baptize people in the waters, I baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that is who God is. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the Trinity is complex, to say the least, but what makes matters more difficult is simply the fact that if you open your Bible and try to find the word Trinity, you cannot find it. Flip through the, back, flip through the concordance to your Bible where all the like, words are located, right? And try to find the word Trinity in Scripture. It's not even there. Nevertheless, this is not a concept we've made up. God is three persons and one God, and we see this clearly communicated at the baptism of Jesus. We see the Son of God going down into the waters. We see Father God echoing, this is my beloved child, and we see the Spirit of God descending on the Son. So let's talk about this. How do, where do we see the Holy Spirit uh, in Jesus' baptism? First of all, we see a ministry filled with the Holy Spirit, a ministry filled with the Holy Spirit. I love this. Jesus is baptized, and as he come up, the Bible says that the heavens opened and the Spirit of God descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. Now, this is awesome, and to say it's an outlier would be an understatement because I've baptized a lot of people, and never once has a dove come in the room and descended on someone, right? That's what happens here, though. And it's the Spirit of God resting on Jesus. Now, let's talk about why this is such a decisive moment. It's decisive on, on multiple levels. The first thing that this does is this serves as a confirmation to the empowerment that was already in Jesus. Notice what I told you earlier, that John, at the beginning, did not know who the Messiah was. How did John know who the Son of God was to be? He said, the Spirit testified to me, the one on whom the Spirit rests is the Messiah, the Son of God. So get this picture. John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens open up, and the Spirit of God descends on God. And you can almost, uh, on Jesus, you can almost picture John the Baptist backing up. Because, oh, oh my God, here it is. And do you know something? The message from this point on, John's message from this point on changes. Because when we see John again in John chapter 1, do you know what he says? Not just baptized for the repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Here's what he says. Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, this changes everything because it confirms that this is who Jesus was. And from this point on, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Moreover, this serves as a signal for Jesus for the start of his ministry. When that Holy Spirit descended on him and, and confirmation, Jesus was already full of the Holy Spirit, but this was a confirmation at that moment that this was the start of Jesus' ministry. In other words, this is the moment where Jesus looked back to, and from this point on, Jesus knew, it's go time now. I have come to accomplish what my Father wills. And then last thing, this is a reminder to us that Christ ministered in the power of God the Spirit. Now let me just say this. If God the Son woke up and waited, on the, and waited to start His ministry on the descent of the Holy Spirit, what makes you think you can make it through one day without the Spirit of God in your life? We see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And then the last thing we see is we see an identity declared by the Father. I love this. 
that when Jesus comes up from that baptism, he, the Bible says he's praying, and as he comes up, the heavens open up. And it's hard for me to imagine that people miss this. Like, I don't know what the heavens open up looks like, but I'm sure people noticed it. And from the heavens opening up, a voice said these words, Behold, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, this serves as a personal confirmation to his identity, and the point's clear. God the Father looks upon God the Son, and he has pleasure in his Son. Now, here's the thing. I don't think we think about this enough. That God the Father, when he looked down on God the Son, when he looked down on the plan that was in motion, when he looked down on the redemption of the people, when he looked down on the salvation that was to come, his default emotion, listen, was happiness, was pleasure. Why is this so important? I think many of us have grown up in a context where we have feared the day of the Lord so long. Listen, can I just tell you that's a good thing to fear? If you're going to fear anything, you should fear God, okay? Like, let me just throw that out there. Like, people who say only God can judge me, that should scare you, right? But I think there are a lot of us who have grown up in this context and we've thought so much about the wrath of God and the anger of God, right, and the, and the coming destruction of sinners that we forget that the default emotion of God is not frustration, but pleasure. Why, why would God be angry all the time? You ever thought about this? God is 100% perfectly sovereign, perfectly in control. You know what he's got to be mad about? Nothing. You know why? He can change it. His default emotion is pleasure, and we see this playing out as he looks on Jesus. He was pleased because up until this point, the Son of God had left heaven, had come to earth, and he had lived 30 years as the Son of God in an obscure place with being a nobody. And he had served as a carpenter. And for 30 years, he had endured the existence of humanity, though he was the very Word of God. And as God looked down on Jesus in this moment, here's what he knows, that Jesus is about to go public with the glory of God and the salvation of God. That all of these people who were on the banks, listen, all of these people who were on the banks to be baptized for repentance of sin, God looks down with pleasure because here's what God knows. Because of the person standing in the river right now, you can be saved. And God looks down and he's, he takes pleasure in Jesus. And that, sh that should move you. Let me tell you something that should really move you. That if you are a believer in Jesus, God looks down on you, and He views you the exact same way that He viewed Jesus. We think so often about, man, am I, am I pleasing God? Am I serving God? Am I honoring God? Am I, am I doing enough for God? Let me remind you that if you are a believer, because of what Jesus Christ has done in that baptismal and on the cross, God looks at you and takes pleasure. That when you went down into the baptismal, listen, you, when you came up, you may not have heard an audible voice, but there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, in whom I take great pleasure. The question is, have you had this kind of decisive moment like Jesus had? A moment where you turn to God and you ask Him to forgive you of your sins and you ask Him to make you new and you decide to follow Jesus. 
And have you followed up, if you have, with believers' baptism? Because that's what this moment's supposed to be. A decisive moment where you can never, never again have to say, I wonder if God's pleased with me because at that baptism we know as a son of God, a son or a daughter of God, God takes great pleasure. So here's what I want to do. I don't want, to, I don't want anybody to raise your hand. I don't want anybody to say a prayer. But if you would, I, I would like everybody to just, uh, every, every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. And I just want to give you some time to, to consider this. Have you had a decisive moment in your life where you've decided to follow Jesus? And you might be saying, well, I, I've, I, I, I don't know if I've had that decisive moment. Let me ask you this. Do you, in this moment, currently love Jesus? Are you learning to love Jesus? Are you growing into love Jesus? And have you followed that up with believer's baptism? If not, listen, today is the day where that decisive moment can become a reality for you. I'd love to talk with you about that after service. Will you pray with me? God, we rejoice in the reality. We rejoice in the reality that you take pleasure in us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And God, I understand that Dear God, believers, baptism is not what saves people, but I do just pray that if there's anybody in here this morning who needs to make that commitment to have a decisive moment, dear God, they would begin to seek that out. But more importantly than just that, I pray that we would be a church full of people that have decided full-heartedly to follow you, Jesus. To say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.